0: Welcome to the podcast, People of the Book. I'm your host, Meryl Ayn. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We chat with authors and storytellers in thought-provoking and intimate interviews, all with a Jewish twist. On today's program, I'm delighted to welcome Jacqueline Friedland, she is the multi award winning author of that's not a thing and trouble the water, her new best selling novel he gets that from me was published in September 2021. A graduate of the university of pennsylvania and nyu law school she practiced law and later taught legal writing and lawyering skills while she began working on her first book in her spare time after she decided to embrace her passion and pursue writing full-time jacqueline returned to school to earn her mfa from sarah lawrence college graduating from the program in 2016 when not writing she is an avid reader of all things fiction she loves to exercise watch movies with her family listen to music make lists and dream about exotic vacations she lives in Westchester New York with her husband four children and two very bossy canines. So I'm so excited to be with you today, Jackie. I've read all three of your books and they're all compelling and enjoyable. And I read, he gets that from me a few weeks ago and I actually lost a night's sleep. It was so enthralling. (laughs) I started reading it late in the afternoon and I couldn't put it down until I finished it the next day.
1: Wow, thank
0: you. That's so nice to hear. Yeah, I loved it. I really loved it on so many levels. And we will we will talk about that. Um, so welcome, Jackie. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here and to chat with you today. Thank you. So for those who haven't read, he gets that from me yet. Uh, <laughs> would you give us a brief summary of the book? Sure.
1: Um, the the briefest summary is that it's the story of a young woman who serves as a surrogate mother only to discover 10 years after the fact that she accidentally gave away her own biological child. Mm -hmm. Um, If you'd like, I could go into a longer summary, but it sounds like you have a question.
0: Um, Yeah, no, that's, I have lots of questions, but
1: (laughs) (laughs) we can, yeah, So, so what inspired you to write this story? So this is my third novel, as you said, and I was kind of toying with a couple of other ideas. I was working on two different projects and neither one of them was really pulling at me. And um, I one day was sitting at my desk and procrastinating. And I started reading something, I don't even remember what publication it was, but it was something on the level of People Magazine online. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: I read, I just stumbled on this article about a woman, an American woman who served as a gestational carrier for a couple from China. Mm -hmm. And she delivered twin babies for this couple that were supposed to be biologically related to the Chinese couple. And when the babies were born, one of them came out appearing to be Chinese and the other one came out appearing to be black, like the gestational carrier's husband. So the doctors and everybody, the family still sent the two babies home with the Chinese couple, like off they went to China. And, Mm -hmm. you know, despite the fact that everyone was perplexed. And after, I think, about a month, they figured out that what had actually happened was that the um, when the carrier got pregnant, only one of the embryos actually became, you know viable, and the surrogate had became pregnant again once she was already pregnant, like you know the natural way by being with her husband. and she delivered these two babies that were not biologically biologically related to each other at all. She just carried both of them at once. So mm-hmm. they ended up giving, the surrogate's biological child back to her. And um, the Chinese couple kept their offspring. But um, I read this article and I was like flabbergasted. I was like, wait. Hold up. You know, right, I took right. biology in ninth grade. I have four children of my own. <laughs> I do believe that I know how this whole like pregnancy thing works and once you're pregnant, <laughs> like that's it, right?
0: <laughs> oh, I re- I remember seeing that as well. I mean, that was whoever heard
1: of that. You know, yep. that was mind-boggling. So yeah. I immediately was on Google like looking at, you know, it's it's called superfetation when this process happens and it is actually completely possible. It's just so incredibly rare that no one ever talks about it. Um, and so it it just made such an impression on me. And, um, for days I was thinking about it and then I had the thought, what if all of the, what if all the parties involved had been the same race and the babies came out, there would have been no Mm. like cause for raising an eyebrow. And so as soon as I had that thought, I was like, it just hit me. I had to write this story. I immediately, the character sprang into being and, I saw a whole story play out. It was like you know they say your life flashes before your eyes. This was like my book flashed before my eyes in in a moment just from thinking about this, and I I had to write it.
0: Yeah, well, it's it is just a a great, uh, captivating compelling story and it, it sounds to me like you found a bit of research to encourage you to write it but I'm wondering I'm curious about what kind of research um, you had to do for the book and when did you do it? Did you do it before or during the writing of the book? You've got so much in there. I mean <laughs> surrogacy, same-sex marriage, DNA um, how long did
1: it take you to uh, research it? Hmm. Um, I think I did probably a couple of weeks of research before I started writing. And then I kind of tried to live life along with my characters. So if they had a question, I had a question. So, you know, oh, what oh. is the law about surrogacy? Let's look this up. And, you know, I was lucky, um, I happened to have a good friend in my life who, whose daughter was born through surrogacy, and she, she was sort of my first stop, and mm-hmm. she spoke with me at length, and then I told another good friend that I was thinking of this project, and she said she just coincidentally at her finance office in Manhattan was having a woman, uh, a doctor come in to speak to people who were interested in learning about surrogacy. Right. So I went and I listened in on that and I you know, waited for everybody to ask their questions and talk to the doctor. And when everybody else had left, I approached her and I told her that I was working on this book and she was incredible and was so excited about it and gave me contact information for someone in her organization who, um, who, who, the, the woman, her name is Lisa, had served as a surrogate herself um, three times, and she also had several friends and contacts who had done the same. So I actually spoke to many people who've been on, you know, actually on both sides of the arrangement, and that was enormously helpful. And then I spoke to doctors, and then I I actually c- called, totally cold, a couple of attorneys in Arizona. Mm-hmm. and. Um, to just talk about, I explained why I was calling and they were so nice. And for the most part, I feel like people are very happy to share what they know. And so- Um, I, you know, I, I spoke to people for also from all different types of families with adopted kids, with no kids, with kids through surrogacy with some, one kid through surrogacy and one, uh, you know, uh, natural born child. So, um, I, it was, it was a lot of fun for me to gather the information, but I definitely had moments where I had to stop the writing to say, wait, you know what? I need to learn a little bit more about this before I can go forward.
0: And how long did it take you to write the book? I think it was about a year. Mm -hmm. Um, My kids get in my way a lot.
1: (laughs) As lovely as they are.
0: Oh, well, you're you're amazing. So um, you write a number of chapters uh, from the perspective of Donovan, who is Mm -hmm. a Christian gay man in a same-sex marriage um, with Chip. I'm wondering how were you able to um, write so believably from his perspective?
1: Um, so that's a great question. And when I started writing the book, I, had, I sort of had concerns of, is this allowed? Can I, you know, can I write from this perspective? But mm-hmm. then yes. what, I, what I really realized is that this is not a book it's about being gay. It's not a book about coming out and how it feels to be gay and how to struggle I with those it. emotions, which I are things that I could not speak to. It's a book about being a parent. And um, and I'm sort of looking at parenting from different perspectives. So to me, Donovan, I created a character who, you know, grew up in a certain type of family with, you know, uh, certain alpha uh, family members and other ones mm-hmm. who were more timid and who he himself suffers from some anxiety and, um, you know, that has hopes and dreams and uh, relating to family. So um, almost every chapter that you you hear from Donovan is really just about his perspective on parenting and on being a son to his pa- to, or a, to a child to his own parents. And, um, and I felt confident in speaking to those issues and um, I'm lucky to have between having three sons and um, you know other men in my life I do I do think I have like a somewhat good perspective on what it means to be male so yeah. um, okay. so I, I did the best I could with it and I will say that I have received only positive feedback okay. not and I, I did I did have some sensitivity reads I did both professionally and uh, personal friends were gay men and said like read this please and make sure you know I'm trying to do this in good faith and please make sure that there's nothing in here that might upset somebody and I right. I, I actually the only um, thing that I needed to be taught which I thought was actually really interesting was that pre in the initial draft of the novel I talked about giving a child up for adoption. And a friend of mine said to me, that's actually like not a nice term to, or a phrase to give up for adoption. And that it's better to say rehomed, okay. uh, which is not something I knew. And it, no. once you hear it, it's, you know, what an awful phrase. I just never, I just never realized. So well, I don't know. Rehomed
0: uh, yeah. doesn't, I doesn't sound that great either. I mean, no. I,
1: No, but it's certainly better than giving up on them.
0: Uh, Yes. Giving up is, is not, is not positive. So tell me, Jackie, what, why did you make Maggie your main character Jewish?
1: (laughs) Um, So as I was thinking about, you know, the, the difficulty of writing from the perspective of a gay Christian man and how to sort of get around that another, Thing that I thought of was that, you know, people do want to hear from a perspective that I am intimately familiar with. And that, um, Mm -hmm. as myself, a New York Jewish woman, I thought I could, I might have some uh, unique insights or, Mm -hmm. um, you Mm -hmm. know. um, And the other part of it was that what I really wanted to look at also was from a religious perspective, if you, especially from a Jewish perspective, where I think a lot of Jewish children are raised to feel a little bit of a responsibility to create more Jewish children based on you know what has happened in the Holocaust or the fact that the Jewish population is shrinking depending on who you ask, or um, you know um, just sort of to continue the lineage that has been going on for so many, you know hundreds, thousands of years. And so to be able to write a character who realizes that she, she surrendered a Jewish child, who then is being raised as a non-Jew. I thought I just really kind of wanted to play with those emotions and see how that would make her feel, especially since she was not any sort of, you know, observant Jew. She was just very secular, and yet it still kind of tugged at her.
0: Well, um, think, so
1: yeah, that was why.
0: Well, I think that is kind of um, poignant for mm-hmm. for Jewish audiences, especially those who maybe more observant, Um, what sort of reaction have you um, received from Jewish audiences about Maggie and her choices? Or Jewish Um, individuals, not necessarily whole audiences. Right.
1: Right. Well, one thing that's interesting is that um, within uh, a lot of the Jewish community, you don't often find women who serve as surrogate mothers. You find many, it's much more common Mm -hmm. to find women who have, had their child, like who have had their own biological child be carried by another person. Mm -hmm. Um, So people, you know, there's been that sort of like, why did you, how could you make that happen? And it was actually, I knew that going in and it was a challenge and it was part of why Maggie had to have trauma in her earlier childhood and, you know, experiences that led her to not have an exactly typical Upper East Side Jewish (laughs) child upbringing. (laughs) Right. right, right, right. Um, so so there was that. And the other thing that, um, is has been interesting to me is that there, in it, depending on the level of observance, when Jewish parents hire a gestational carrier to carry their child, there are certain uh, places where you have to then convert the baby, even though the baby is biologically oh, right. made yeah. of Jewish you know, material. When the baby is born through the body of a woman who is not Jewish, oh, there are oh, certain Jewish. rabbis oh. who will say that, that mm. the child needs to be converted because you never know going down the line if a very orthodox, say it's a, a girl and a very orthodox guy's family says like, no, she's because she was born through a vessel that was not Jewish. Then oh, she's I didn't
0: know to- that. That's very, yes. that's interesting.
1: Yes. So there's, there's all these crazy complications that, that come up and, you know, I think thankfully it's worth it for the parents to go through it and get their child. And it's just funny that there's um, things you never expect to hear about, you know, the, the pumping of breast milk and shipping it across the country or, you know, um, spending money to have, you know, the intended parents will pay for a household help so that the pregnant woman does not have to over you know expend herself and things like that that i mean it's all i think wonderful and but also very eye opening and and expensive and expensive what's crazy is that the amount of money that people spend is nowhere near what the surrogate actually makes because you're paying for her travel you're paying for her doctors bills You're paying, you know, again, for her help and things like that. You're also paying the agency fees. You're paying the legal fees. Um, And then what the surrogate actually takes home, people reading drafts of the book kept saying, no, you must be wrong. It has to be more money than that. And I actually, because of that, inflated the amount a little bit. Um, but the, you the, have that 30,000, 30, I yes, think? Yes, yes. Yeah. And it's not, it's it's that would be a very high take home at the end of the day mm-hmm. for a gestational carrier. Not impossible, but unusually yeah. high. Mm-hmm. Um, and the women who do it, do it because less for the money and more for the what they're getting out of it emotionally and the sort of joy of giving back. And even Maggie in the book, who's doing it ostensibly for the money, I think to me, has a sort of an emotional need to be indispensable to somebody, and so um, even for her, it's you know icing on the cake kind of.
0: I, I mean, it would. It's hard to think that somebody could only do that for money. I mean. <laughs> I have yes. three children and it's not easy being pregnant, so. No. Um, um, so.
1: And then they take the money and they use it for things that are completely, you know, like a trip to Disney or, you know, um, massages, like things there, you know, it's, they're not, the surrogacy agencies, if they know that the woman needs the money, they usually say she's not a good fit because, you um, it's that that's not what they want. They want the women who are doing this just because they need the the carriers feel they have to give something back.
0: Well, it it's 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 altruistic. I mean, my mm-hmm. husband recently had a kidney transplant. I mean, to right. somebody giving their kidney or giving their womb. It's mm-hmm. it's very altruistic act. I think. Yes. Um, so you portray the twin children, Kai and Teddy, very sensitively, and. Um, My, by the way, my husband is an identical twin. So I kind of understand something about that mystical and very close relationship um, between twins. Um, Did you draw on your own children when crafting these
1: characters? Um, It's funny. I actually, for the, for, I more drew on my relationship with my sister. Um, (laughs) She and I are not twins, but we, She's a couple of years older than I am, and we grew up extremely close. And she always seemed to know my needs in a way that my parents didn't or didn't yet. And at least that was the way I felt. So um, part of what I wanted to explore in the book was the idea that, you know, I one thing I do think as a parent is that I feel like, you know, we think we know our children so well And then you see or hear something that shows you, you know, no, you don't actually know them as well as you think. You only know them in the parent-child sphere, and out in the world, they're a whole person, and you can only kind of see them one way. So, I really wanted to explore how well do parents really know their children? How well do children know their parents? Um, And you know, and and how those relationships sort of um, interact with each other. So. Um, And I I think it can be very nuanced. And I I just wanted to sort of let that all bear out. I did actually, one thing I did pull from my own child is that um, I have one of my kids has a nut allergy. And I did did put that into the book just as a, I I like to raise awareness of issues Mm. when I can. So yes,
0: yes, yes. Um, So I think that your book is a perfect choice for a book book club discussion Uh, have you met with many book clubs and what's been the reaction
1: i have met with tons of book clubs and it's been for me super fun and for the book clubs um you know it's funny there's definitely two schools of thought about how this story should have ended and people, I mean, I, thankfully, it's still been all very positive about the book, but um, people who weren't necessarily rooting for Maggie or weren't necessarily rooting for Donovan, in case anyone hasn't read it, I don't want to spoil anything. Right. Um, so um, it's been interesting to see the different perspectives. And um, I think people have also just been very interested to learn about some of the intricacies of how surrogacy works. Um, And, you know, the choices that can impact us uh, through much of our lives, I will say that. And the other thing is that there's an epilogue at the end of the book. And there's also two very strong reactions. People either love the epilogue or they hate the epilogue. And it's really been very 50-50. Um, even in my house, when my husband read the draft, he was sort of, he was like, you got to get rid of the epilogue. And I was like, no, we need the epilogue. So,
0: um, (laughs) well, everybody read the book, read the whole book and then read the epilogue. Um, so I I was wondering, um, did you, were there some questions you wanted to raise in the book? Did you want people to ask, for instance, what it means to be a parent or what does it mean to be part of a family, um, or Nature versus nurture. Um, th- were there were there specific questions you you were hoping people um, would raise
1: after reading your book? Um, it's funny. I actually wanted people to ask themselves all of those questions, and also um, I I really wanted to explore the the question of parents who think they know what is best for their child Mm -hmm. and um, how to figure out what is actually best for uh, for your child. And, you know, I, I think a lot about how um, I, I, for example, never got to ride horses when I was a kid because I had mild scoliosis. And the one piece of advice the doctor gave us was don't ride horses. And this had been like a dream of mine to go riding through the pastures. And it was, <laughs> I was robbed of it. Mm-hmm. And um, so when I had a daughter, I was so excited for her to ride horses, but she never said she wanted to ride horses. I wanted her to ride horses. And right. uh, it just, it makes you, I, I sort of wanted to explore that, you know, what are we doing for our children? And what are we, doing for ourselves and also, you know, is it the parent who needs the child more than the child needs the parent as much as we've always thought otherwise? And that those were my, my sort of big questions myself uh, in the book. Okay, so, so
0: questions, um, was there in addition to the questions, a particular message you wanted readers to come away with after reading the book?
1: Um, I think, Insofar as the story overall, I would say the message that I'm hoping to get across with it is that it's important to have people who are there for you. And whether that's through family that you've, you know, uh, created in a traditional way or uh, friendships or whatever it might be, um, it's important to have your support system, uh, you know, there for you.
0: Okay, so I read that you have described yourself, and I—I don't remember if it was a genre jumper or genre hopper. Which—which was it? Both, I, I think both. I have called myself both. Okay, good. Okay, so you've written two contemporary fiction books and mm-hmm. one historical fiction novel. Um, would you explain that term to our listeners and tell us briefly about your two your other two books?
1: Sure. So when I my first book, which is called Trouble the Water, is historical fiction about a young woman from England who moves to the US and builds a relationship with um, someone in South Carolina who, who turns out to be an underground abolitionist and I wrote this book when I began it when I was in my 20s my early 20s and I really I was very into reading historical fiction at the time and I also just felt like I didn't have enough life experience to write something contemporary that would require me to draw on you know, more on uh, my wisdom and and things that I just was not grasping yet. So Mm -hmm. it was almost like a crutch because history is so rife with information and it's like the plot already happened. So Mm -hmm. I wrote that. And then I kind of got that out of my system and I felt I had, but it took me 10 years also. So by the time the 10 years passed, I felt like I did have some life experience and Um, I had these my second and third books, while both contemporary are actually not even the same genre as each other, because my second that's not a thing is a romance, a contemporary romance about a young woman in Manhattan, whose first great love uh, comes back into her life just as she's finally kind of recovered from losing him. Right. And um, I. I had so much fun writing that book, it, took, it, you know, it, it poured out of me very quickly. And um, so I decided, okay, I guess I write contemporary fiction now. And that was how I ended up on the third book. But one thing that's been nagging at me um, since writing my first book is a, a, a part of true history that I stumbled on that I had never known about and th- sort of thought one day I need to write this story and then when covid began and we were on lockdown at home and so i think emotionally drained every day worrying about what was going to happen i had just finished he gets that from me and i just felt like i couldn't i couldn't create i could only take in so i decided that this was the time to research that other story that i had found mm-hmm. and i spent a few months going really deep i read pretty much everything out there and Um, found this historical tale that needs to be told. Um, Bits and pieces have been told, but the whole story, I think most Americans have never heard anything about. And so that was the project I I ended up on. And I wrote another historical fiction. And um, I I just, I, I think that I go where I feel the story is. And I don't like to be contained to a specific point of time or focus of the story, if there's a good story out there that I think will speak to people, I'd like to tell it. The only genre where I will say that I think I will always be is fiction. Beyond that, you know. (laughs) um,
0: Okay, so I'm curious, do you have a different mindset or a process depending on the particular genre you're writing or is it the same?
1: Huh. That's a good question. Um, I think with the historical, especially this last one that I just wrote where I really was telling almost a biography of somebody, um, it was so much of it was predetermined that um, it gave me the freedom to kind of focus entirely on their emotions. And with the contemporary having to also figure out Plot. Um, I I think I go back and forth. You know, I do plot, and then how would that make you feel? And plot, and how would that make you feel? And um, I don't know. That's my answer. Um, I think that I I try to connect with my characters deeply, whichever genre I'm in, and um, I feel it's very fluid for me. I kind of just go back and forth, and they're all each character is my friend. And it's like being with, you know, different friends of yours that you sort of, you maybe behave a little differently with this one or that one, but at the the end of the day, you're still yourself. So
0: you don't, you don't have a preference.
1: No, I'm trying. I wish I had a preference to tell you the truth so that I could pick one thing and stick with it. But, um, (laughs) 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 because, you know, there's so many authors who, you know, every book that this one writes is about a beach romance on Nantucket. And you know that when you pick up her book, you know exactly what you're going to get. Um, and I think that there's many people in the industry who prefer that, but that's just not the kind of artist I am. So,
0: oh, we, we're, we're unwrapping a surprise every time you write exactly. a book. It's <laughs> Great. So I understand that you are very organized with four children. You have to be, do you have <laughs> any tips for the rest of us
1: on how to stay organized? Um, I think routine is really important. Um, I think that having certain days blocked off on your calendar where you will not make a doctor's appointment, you will not, you know, go to the grocery store um, and you will not, if there's something you need to do, it will wait until the next day um, Mm -hmm. is is useful in in making sure you get enough hours at your desk. Um, and then, and yet life will always intervene. You'll get a call from a kid who broke his arm at school or whatever, and you, you have to get up and go. Um, but if I think that if you have enough of those days where you say, you know, every Monday from eight to four, I'm going to be in my chair writing. Um, if you have enough of those that eventually you will have a completed project.
0: And do you have one uh, place or space where you write?
1: I do. Um I we I have a office at home that I I share with my husband. Uh he usually goes out to his office, but he does work from home more now than he did pre-pandemic and certainly during the pandemic he was home and um I couldn't I at that time thought, you know, maybe I should relocate somewhere else in the house, but um I I have a desktop. I don't like writing on a laptop computer and I didn't want to leave my desk. So instead I got myself some headphones and I put the music up uh, nice and loud so I don't hear my husband on the phone. And um, that's that's what I you, do. You can write while you're listening to music? I can if you're going to laugh. I can if I listen to music that has no words. And I find classical music actually distracts me. But Scottish classical does not. So I listen to bagpipes. <laughs> and somehow it drowns out the outside world and it's actually become sort of Pavlovian that now when I hear bagpipes I I very quickly am kind of in the zone
0: wow wow Um,
1: so um, which is funny because I'm not writing Scottish stories but it is what it is no
0: no 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 well maybe we'll see a Scottish character in in, (laughs) in one of your novels you never know um, so we're we're coming to the end of our time. Jackie, w- um, would you like to tell us where our listeners can find you?
1: Yes. Um, they the best way to find me is to follow me on Instagram. I'm Jackie Friedland um, on Instagram, or they can find me at my website, which is um I'm also on Facebook as Jacqueline Friedland. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty accessible and love to hear from readers and would love to do anybody's book club. So I hope people will reach out.
0: Okay. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, I
1: think we covered it all.
0: Okay, great. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Jacqueline Freeland. Her new book is He Gets That From Me. I also want to thank our executive producer, Pam Stack. People of the Book is a copyrighted presentation of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Please visit us and like our Facebook page, People of the Book. I'm your host, Merrill Ain. For more information about my books and writing, visit me at merylain.com. Until next time, please join us on Facebook at Jews Love to Read and Read a Good Book.